0: What's that you're eating there, Adam? I'm eating a big fat steak. What are you eating, Joe?
1: I'm eating nothing at all, but what I am doing is I'm drinking some green juice from a cosmic smoothie bowl and looking forward to a glass of locale rose. Yum. Wow. Why? Well, I'm sorry to have to tell you that I've been hypnotised by the wellness industry. God, how
0: did that happen?
1: Well, I just exposed myself to a lot of social media that successfully peddled me the idea that I need to severely restrict my calorie intake, partake in a lot of yoga and pilates and wear face masks.
0: Well, we all need to wear face masks. Not that kind.
1: I am enough.
0: So, did you get that juice off of uh, Shropshire Farm Foods?
1: I didn't. I clicked an affiliate link on Instagram and now I can only drink this forever.
0: I don't do yoga, never tried pilates.
1: Not many people want me at their parties. I'm just trying to find my place someplace.
0: I drink a little more than recommended.
1: This world ain't exactly what my heart expected. Well, stay la vie, maybe something's wrong with me. Well, at least I'm free. Oh, I am
0: free. Joe, I think what's happened here is we've both got confused.
1: I'm not confused. I am enough. I am free. I give myself permission to listen to my own intuition.
0: I think we have got confused. I think we both started singing the lyrics of Rudimental featuring MLA Sunday, sung Free. And then I also think you were just saying a load of sound bites that essentially mean very little as well.
1: I give myself permission to prioritise my own psychic space over what other people want from me. What does that even mean?
0: What is a psychic space anyway? <laughs> Why would it be a good thing, even assuming that there was such a thing? For you, to solipsistically insist on remaining in it, even when somebody else needed you for something?
1: Well, because my time is my own, I'm a feminist, and that means putting myself first and buying the right things. I give myself permission to decide when it's time to walk away. But but again, like... How would that work?
0: I mean, you can't just go through life deciding to walk away, can you? That would be rude at best and potentially very dangerous at worst. When you go low, I go high. I think what I'm finding most difficult about talking to you today is that nothing you say seems original or meaningful. It's all just empty phrases made meaningless by repetition that don't stand up to any
1: kind of scrutiny at all. You're right, I'll I'll stop it. What we're talking about in this episode, listeners, is the wellness industry, women, forms of feminism or things that look like feminism, social media, sound bites, and the relationships between wellness, wokeness, and capitalism. In other words, we're talking about Lee Stein's satirical novel, self-care and shortly we'll be talking to lee herself
0: first before we forget shall we say who we actually are
1: i'm joe war senior lecturer in 19th century literature and co-host of this podcast i beg your pardon
0: you're dr joe war aren't you
1: i'm dr joe war senior lecturer in 19th century literature and co-host of this podcast that is called smith and war talk about satire and my name is dr adam
0: smith and I'm a senior lecturer in 18th century literature, and I'm also a co-host of that podcast in which we discuss the form, function, future and history of satire in a desperate bid to amass quantifiable impact for our research.
1: Correct, now let's talk about some of those things, and let's do that first of all by playing a little clip. Ow, my stomach.
0: Do you suffer from gut agony?
1: <laughs> and my head.
0: Tension head. Got that bloated feeling?
1: Oh,
0: inevitable wrinkles the beginnings of lady mustache and now you've pissed yourself again <laughs> women you're leaking aging hairy overweight and everything hurts and your children's clothes are filthy Don't wonder men long for other less clammy women for god's sake sort yourself out <laughs>
1: Now
2: I'm free to live my own life my way. Men, shave and get drunk because you're already brilliant.
1: There we go. So that was the Women Sort Yourself Out sketch from the Mitchell and Webb look in 2009 which is a satire on the idea or a A joke about the idea that women seem to be kind of targeted by the advertising industry to make themselves feel better, look better, wash people's clothes better, tidy up better. Whereas men are targeted, as they suggest, to drink beer and shave because you're already awesome. Um, What do you think about that clip?
0: I think it's... um... Well, I think it's spot on, isn't it? That's exactly how the marketing industry works and how it's worked for a long time and how I would argue or suggest that it continues to work, albeit in slightly more insidious ways.
1: That's 2009, isn't it? That's before you've got quite so many sort of algorithms and cookies that make sure that the woman in that clip, whenever she goes on Instagram, is is targeted by adverts to do all of those things that are, mm-hmm. that are perhaps different from the ones that target male accounts on Instagram and, and the like.
0: And also I'm mindful of just being like, oh, things are worse now than they were in the olden days or whatever. But it, it seems to me perhaps in preparing for this episode and just generally, it's now empowering as well. So it's not just a case of sort yourself out, you're a mess. Yeah. It's, it would actually be more empowering. And in fact, it's somehow feminist for you to sort yourself out and do all of these yeah. things.
1: I think I'd say things are worse now than in the olden days because we've got that whole pandemic thing, haven't we? So it's, it's not quite so reactionary to think the olden days were better because there wasn't that, that drafted virus, at least. Hmm. But, uh, but yeah, in the specific area you're talking about, I think as well, it has, it's become a lot more canny, hasn't it? The way that this propounded in the media and in advertising. But yeah, that's an interesting point about the idea that somehow it's become feminist to do those things, or or rather perhaps certain branches of feminism manage to sort of intersect with, with the idea that you should buy stuff and, and feel better. I just found an advertising email that I um, got in my inbox, I had to go back into my junk mail to retrieve it from uh, yesterday, that is selling the best feminist t-shirts. And one of the brands, one of the kinds of best feminist t-shirts you can buy is the t-shirt that is called Rock and Roll Bride, and it's described thus. When it comes to feminism, you can also stand up for equality without needing to label your brand sick as feminist like rock and roll bride who are putting females first with their photos of rebellious women with rad colored hair and punk tattoos we love it
0: so i don't understand what's where the feminist part is in that
1: they're rebellious because they've got rad colored hair and punk tattoos Mm -hmm. so they're rebelling in that sense which means i guess they're rebelling generally which means they're feminist Mm. doesn't work does it i
0: don't think that works (laughs) no
1: (laughs) also reminds me of um, an article from a, a few years back from somebody who I very rarely agree with and only agree with a fraction of, of what she said here. Um, but there was an article that the interview with Lee Stein reminded me of by Julie Birchill, not Julie Bind, although they're often confused. And she's writing about pampering and the uh, craze for the fashion for women to pamper themselves it, not just to pamper themselves but to consider it as being a treat or a relaxing and pleasant way to spend your time when essentially what you are doing argues virtual is rendering yourself more attractive and specifically in many cases more attractive to men. So painting your toenails and filing bits of yourself and de-hairing bits of yourself and doing things to other bits of hair and buffing your skin and whatever have been flogged to women as something that not only they should do but that they should consider to be a leisure activity that they should do to relax themselves when in fact all they're doing is polishing and preening themselves for the male gaze. Now where Julie Bird that goes from there is is essentially to blame women for doing that and for doing it to each other and she views it as being something that operates completely separate from men that it, it, it's just women who do it and women who want to do it and women who make other women do it and I feel like maybe it's a bit more more complicated than that and so there's that that, that something quite clever has happened hasn't it in that we are encouraged to do these things and to think that it's a treat for us to do them and that, that is, that's relaxing and fun But what about the
0: argument that it is relaxing and fun and that you will feel better when you've pruned and polished yourself.
1: Well if it was, if it felt that great the men would be doing it as well wouldn't they?
0: That's true but I've heard that argument, I've heard I, I'm sure people, women have said to me in the past like it makes me happy to feel attractive and therefore well, it's empowering for me to, to fashion myself <laughs> into an object for the male gaze
1: well, I don't think you necessarily have to be making the argument that it's empowering to feel unattractive or that it's unpleasant to feel attractive but it's It seems to me like it might be a bit more complicated than just that you do it because you want to do it and you buy the things because you want to buy them. And as Catelyn Moran has said, you know, of of any given social behaviour, ask yourself, are the men doing this? And if not, there's probably something you want to have a think about in terms of feminism there. I mean, I think the pampering industry has has made some efforts and some inroads into encouraging men to think of this as something, another way they could be spending their money. But it seems like it, it intersects with certain expectations of women as well
0: so if the the, the, this kind of pampering industry is making inroads into the male market which i think it is and and it's been for a long time hasn't it i feel like people have been talking about metrosexual men for what 15 years a a, a long one and and increasingly
1: you have to have a term that associates the man with a big city or a building or an underground network of trains in order to flog the idea that he should be buying moisturiser you know and and also a word that explicitly distinguishes him from from a homosexual man it's just (laughs) another form of being heterosexual you can be straight as you please and still buy beard oil and moisturiser and whatever else it is they want men to buy it's interesting isn't it? it's about sexism isn't it but it's also of course about capitalism this is another way to tell you that the way to feel better mm. is to spend money well so it's, it's two things isn't it and we'll come on to this in the discussion with lee the best thing you can do for yourself and in some instances for society is not to think about systems and structures and injustices but to think about yourself have a have a look inwards, but to help you have a look inwards, buy some stuff.
0: Mm. You see this all the time, don't we? It's a very there's a complex issue, and I suppose this issue is you know, how how to live a good life and how to be the best mm. version of yourself or whatever. And the quickest and easiest solution is to buy something. And, and fortunately, there's this this capitalism is there to provide that. But it's also a capitalism. And I think the Michelin web sketch flags this quite well. that, that relies on reinforcing gender stereotypes, isn't it? Yeah and this is what one of the things that Judith Butler talks about is that you know gender is always performed and has no it's a performance of something that has no original. So capitalism is there to help you to try and strive towards an ideal version of something that never truly existed. For a very long time, in the late 80s, and early 90s, Judith Butler was talking about the constructiveness of, of gender, the fact that gender is not natural. Specifically, that, that phrase is used over and over again. Mm. And it only feels natural because it's reproduced so many times and reenacted so many times, and we're taught how to reenact it. And capitalism, then and still, again, more insidiously perhaps now, is there to help you to enact it in increasingly extreme ways, which involves spending a lot of money.
1: So, before we talk to Lee, um, a bit of context self care is Lee's fourth book. She's also written a memoir, Land of Enchantment, a poetry collection, Dispatch from the Future, and another novel, The Fallback Plan, and lots of non fiction and essays in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Yorker, and many more.
0: It really is amazing that we got her to speak to us. <laughs>
1: I still can't believe that happened.
0: And one important context here is also that she co-founded and directed the feminist literary non-profit organisation Out of the Binders, which worked to advance the careers of women and gender variant writers.
1: So she knows about directing feminist organisations and in self-care she's imagined a really, I think, quite believable one called Ritual, which is described as a social network built as a world without men where women could actually take care of themselves. So the concept of Ritual is really important in the novel because it's it's all it's about characters who work there and about expo- exposing the hypocrisies and flaws in this company. So I'm just because I think you need to understand what ritual is I'm going to read a passage that should help listeners who haven't yet read the book what it's all about if that's okay with you. That's fine, yeah. Okay. So this is from the book Ritual asked when's the last time you put yourself first? Our app pressed a pause button on all the bullshit in daily life. You could track your meditation minutes and the ounces of water consumed and REM sleep and macros and upcoming mercury retrogrades and see who among your friends was best at prioritizing hashtag me time based on how many hours they spent on the app. It was a virtual space where at Smoky Mountain Heart Opener posted videos of herself doing forearm stands in a thong leotard and at Pussy Grabs Back shared photos of her feet soaking in Epsom salt after a march. It was the digital sanctuary where you went to unload your pain. We earned revenue from the brands who were offered solutions to the pain, serums and creams, juices and dusts, clays and scrubs, drugs and masks, oils and enemas, scraping and purging, vaping and waxing, lifting and lengthening, strengthening and defining, detox and retox, the cycle of life. Is it basically a kind of Instagram with more influences on it? Um, A fitness tracker with a more competitive streak, a period tracker with phases of the moon as well as of your cycle, a network of affiliate links, algorithms, cookies and influences, all there ostensibly to empower you and empower you to spend money and feel better.
0: That's right. And the novel tells the story of its founders, Marin and Devin, and one of their precariously employed employees, Khadija, Exposing the pitfalls of the wellness industry, wokeness, startup businesses, and sexual politics.
1: Yes, and before we get into it, there's probably just one other thing to note, isn't there?
0: Yes, Lee is our first ever international guest. So, Lee is an American author and she zoomed us from the comfort of her own home all the way across the pond.
1: Yep, and related to that, this is also the first time we've really discussed satire on this podcast that originates from outside of the UK. Most of what we've talked about has been British. Satire hasn't it? The form,
0: function, future, and history of British satire. Yeah. So when we started yeah. our project, satire, deaths, births, legacies, we specified that in the in the first instance we were interested in British satire, just to give us somewhere to start, really. But it was always our intention to broaden that scope, and here we are, coming up to two years later. Doing exactly that.
1: Since this is our first kind of protracted foray into um, American satire, um, we're going to be encountering a few words and phrases that regular listeners might not be familiar with. Just really words that are particularly to do with the social and political landscape at the moment, and um, that might just be worth going over, mightn't they? Absolutely. Not, well, not, like, not like if it says cookie, it means biscuit.
0: Well, actually, many of our listeners might be more familiar with these terms and ideas than we are, actually, Joe, because 30% of our listeners are actually from
1: outside of the UK. Okay well we weren't familiar with all of them were we so shall we do a quick do you know what what over there i can see to the left there's like a sort of shitty cobwebby horrible brexit 18th century corner mm. but in the other in the other bit of this virtual space i can see a corner full of full of, full of nice things full of burgers and uh, all kinds of intro- and milkshakes and and baseball games and i think it might be an american things corner shall we pop over to the american things corner and have a little chat Let's do that.
0: You very much i feel i'm quite comfortable inside this american corner now
1: it's nice in the american corner isn't it americanos as apparently they're called i thought they were called americans but um, it's americanos in that song we heard there from holly johnson who began his career in the early 80s advising people to relax and, and then later sang this song about americanos blue jeans and chinos coke pepsi and oreos americanos movies and heroes in the land of the free, you can be what you want to be. Does that does that kind of help contextualise Americano a bit? I mean,
0: definitely. That last lyric about being what you want to be in the American dream, I think a lot of what Lee's interested in is going to be about yeah. right here, the, the idea that you can achieve your potential.
1: I, d- I don't know why they wear two two pairs of trousers at once, but I guess we have a lot to learn, don't we, about different cultures. They wear blue jeans and chinos mm. and drink, drink that cola drink called Coke Pepsi. Mm. And I always thought it was pronounced Oreos, but... Oreos, apparently. That's what Holly Johnson calls them, and he should know. Would you like some Coke Pepsi and an Oreo before we start?
0: I'm okay, thank you. Just one other point, they wouldn't be trousers, they'd be pants.
1: Of course, pants, yeah. Pants, yeah. Which it's is, a minefield, it's, isn't it? It's two pairs especially. of pants
0: which are um, different from briefs. Okay, so... Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, so I right. think the leader of the opposition is is absolutely pants. <laughs> you, you could say that if, if Thomas was... Dressed as a
0: pair of trousers. Who sang this song? Holly Johnson. Yeah, so Boris Johnson could say, he's got more pants than a lyric by Holly Johnson.
1: So three. Yes, he could say that. I don't know I don't know how, how funny that would be, but he could try, couldn't he? Um, so yeah, what are some of the terms that we're going to be using in this conversation well, what and the, what do they mean?
0: Well, one of the things that comes up in, in a lot of these commentary around the novel, and often in the interview, she talks about how the book is, in some sense, a parody of something called goop. I didn't know what <laughs> this was. What the hell is a goop?
1: Yes, so goop is a modern lifestyle brand, and um, so it's a website with cutting-edge wellness advice from doctors, vetted travel recommendations, and a curated show. Everything's curated, isn't it? Rather than just put. So it's a brand and company founded by.
0: Gwyneth Paltrow.
1: It is founded by Gwyneth Paltrow. That's right. So you can basically sort yourself out on goop in terms of what to buy, what to put on your face, how to decorate your house. So, and I noticed at the top of goop, on goop has a um, a list shop beauty food and home style travel wellness and men yeah it takes all the all that pesky choice out of being alive by telling you what to what to buy where to buy it from how healthy to be where to go on holiday what to have in your house it it's uh, it's all there isn't it from soothing alpacas to vibrators to um elegant picnic basket menus for summer It's all there on goop. So Ritual is clearly a satire of goop, isn't it?
0: And I never heard of goop before I read the novel, and the novel still absolutely worked. But then Mm. you realise that it's actually addressed to a thing that's very similar to Ritual, it does add another layer, doesn't it? For sure,
1: yeah. What is slack? Slack is an app. It's another word for trousers.
0: Oh, it is, isn't it?
1: Trousers, trousers everywhere.
0: Yeah, I think you mean pants, actually, because we're an American corner, aren't we? But yes, Slack. No, Slack is an app, and I've never seen it. I don't have it, but I've spoken to some people who do, and I gather instead of emailing people, you would just in this app you can just start new threads see so you mm-hmm. a thread and then whoever you wanted to be in the in the thread you would add and then you could talk about whatever project you're on however there are some threads that have everyone in the company in and therefore very quickly start to act like an in-house form of Twitter so you yes. could use thread for just talking to one or two people or you could t- address hundreds of people and I gather that you can post in slack in such in you know slack allows for virtue signaling within the institution it also, unfortunately, allows for pylons trolling and all of the things that we would associate with with other mainstream forms of social media. But it's slightly different because it's all in house and it's all moderated by your employer.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, do you know what it, it most obviously appears to to be a lot like Microsoft, Microsoft Teams, in it? What is a Bernie bro? A Bernie bro. I think if you had no understanding at all of American politics, but you had a fairly detailed understanding of UK politics, I think. Um, the most direct equivalent would be the sort of chap who who is puritanically Corbynite. It's, it's a Corbynister, isn't it it's but it but so much more goes with it than that. it bearded in inverted commas woke bro who can't countenance the ideological impurity that would mean he could transfer and i'm saying he because as bernie bro and this is this is the way the phrase is used but perhaps i should say he or she and um, couldn't countenance the kind of ideological compromise it might take to then support keir starmer because corbyn is this kind of messianic figure attracting the most puritanically left-wing socialists so a bernie bro the Bernie in question would be whom? Um, it's not just any Bernie, is it? What Bernie is it? Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, that's right. Yeah. So those who who are kind of so committed in their support of Bernie Sanders that that they struggle with or refuse to to support Joe Biden in the in the forthcoming elections. The primaries <laughs> is the next thing on the list. Primaries. Mm. That's where you go to school until you're eleven, right? That's right. Yeah, the primary school. Okay, uh, let's move on. What's the girl boss? Okay, no. What's a what's a
0: primary? As I understand it, in the. US election system. Primary, Mm -hmm. when they decide who's going to be president, it's a very, very long process. So it's not just a case of the party decides who the main candidate is going to be president. They actually have to have like a sub-competition in that phase. So you've got lots of people who are all putting together their presidential campaign. And then at the end of the primaries, you know who the candidates that are going to go forward to the main presidential campaign are going to be. So. This is a bit
1: like a more, more drawn out, more fancy, more exciting version of leadership contests. Yes, girl boss. Girl boss. What's a girl boss?
0: So much like goop, I never heard this expression girlboss until preparing for this episode and reading this book but I now know more about it girlboss is a term that Lee Stein has actually written about previous to this book coming out in an essay for Medium which went viral called The End of the Girlbosses Nigh um, which I think is a really useful essay in that it sort of presents Lee's thesis on all of this stuff as herself and uh, the conclu- it's got this good line in the conclusion which I think sets up a lot of what we're talking about today. Woke capitalism lets the elites maintain the status quo whilst paying lip service to the demands of activists and as ethical consumers Millennials get to feel like they're making a difference every time they go shopping and that's sort of so much of, of what we're talking about. Um, but in terms of what an actual girl boss is, do you know?
1: Is it a girl that's a boss?
0: Well, it's a woman who's a boss, isn't it? It's a woman who's a boss, I think, tends to be in charge of a startup. The girl boss was the millennial embodiment of unapologetic ambition. Her greatest pleasure was success. Being un- underestimated only motivated her to trounce her doubters.
1: It seems like the term came about when Sophia Amoruso called her memoir hashtag Girlboss. And she was the CEO of fashion site Nasty Girl. And that's the company that the series Girl Boss is about. Mm-hmm. So it's might have started as a kind of empowering term so it a a girl boss is a a, by this definition a woman who is a a boss or a a ceo Mm -hmm. um who subscribes to a kind of lean in form of feminism and who is as a as a boss unpleasant and ineffectual it's the kind of it's kind of the epitome of feminism that isn't really feminism that attributes the fact that a woman is a boss automatically assumes that that is a feminist victory however she chooses to operate as a boss.
0: In Lee's essay she talks about a, a trait of the girl boss is a fetishization of overworking and workaholism which even added a mm. hashtag which is hashtag rise and grind. Yeah. And it's bound up in this idea of mixing capitalism with social justice. Yeah. yeah. And, and finally...
1: What, what is
0: The Biggest Loser. Uh, The Biggest Loser is a reality TV program competition in America, I don't think it's on anymore, where people competed to lose the most weight. Yeah.
1: There's nothing wrong with that.
0: There's nothing wrong with that, and uh, Lee uses it as an analogy in the interview. She says this is like The Biggest Loser, so that's what that is, and uh, what's a sidewalk? I'm walking here. I think it's American for pavement, isn't
1: it? Right. Okay. Cool. Well, that's
0: all. I think we have sorted out all the American things.
1: I think so. Yeah. I, I don't want to leave the American corner because it's full of lovely things and snacks and great TV. But I suppose we should leave the American corner and go to the interview corner.
0: Let's go immediately in the interview corner. <laughs>
1: so here we are in the interview corner let's talk to lee stein author of self-care
0: we have a reading group that we set up during the pandemic we read your book and just so much to say about it.
2: Well, that's great. You'll be very prepared for your book group. Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) Who or what are your targets?
2: Well, it's interesting. When I was preparing to talk to you, I, I asked myself, like, did I know it was a satire from the beginning? I don't know that I knew from the beginning that I was writing a satire, and I even have done another podcast with someone who is a musician, and he's very much in the New York City scene, fashion scene. And he knew like the founder of Think's Underwear. And he said, I don't think your book is a satire. He said, I think it's just like realist. Like he's like, I know all these people in the book. And I thought that I was really exaggerating and amplifying But some people are like, no, I know everyone you're talking about. But today, having written a satire, I would say that I have three targets. The first is the easiest to pick out, which is the kind of Goop wealthy white women wellness space. The Goop products are so over the top that you can't even satirize them. Like there's a You can buy a $695 black dress that you can wear while your self-tanner is setting into your skin so it doesn't get on your white clothing. And I think that's what people immediately pick out, that I'm making fun of these Instagram influencers, women with too much time on their hands who spend too much time on their diet. Then I think I'm making fun of girl boss feminism, which is kind of this empty, hollow, personal branding where you might have feminist in your profile online, but it's really about you. It's a kind of narcissism and it also feeds right into capitalism. So these women that grew these big companies by claiming that they were feminists, but behind the scenes, there were unethical practices. And a Perfect example of this is the wings, Audrey Gelman, who stepped down this summer. She had built this co-working space for women. She'd raised millions of dollars in venture capital from other women. That was supposed to be a rah-rah success for women. And then it turns out that the women of color who were the hourly workers at these spaces were treated like the help. By again, by the wealthy white women who paid membership fees. And then, thirdly, this is a layer that not everyone picks up. I think when they're reading the book, which either means, which I'd be curious to see what you think. But I don't know if it was too subtle or if I see that other people don't see. But I think I'm also satirizing the extremes of far left woke culture and the kind of groupthink on that side. I loved your interview with Titania McGrath. And I think I I share something in common um, with him slash her in that I'm skewering kind of the extreme dogma of the woke internet feminists that see everything in very clear black and white terms of who's a good person and who's a bad person. And the way that victimhood can become almost like a prized status
1: that's fascinating and that is definitely something that we were really hoping we'd be able to talk to you about and I think those three layers probably struck me in the exact same order that you've just mentioned because first off the excesses of Instagram or as you say like they're not even necessarily exaggerations they are so instantly recognizable you they're so nailed in the text and so like lots of things where I I was reading and thinking like i would never noticed it was a thing but how the I've never talked about this before but it's a trope. And that's so beautifully observed and so recognizable. And then as you say, that very superficial feminism where they believe women, women are people do better.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, ritual has ten commandments in the book. Yeah. yeah. These catchphrases become memes, and we kind of lose yeah. the substance of them. And I think the character of Marin. So, I people who know me, I think would recognize me as Marin more than any other character in the book. And I, in my own experience, I spent three years running a feminist nonprofit organization, and I was part of the woke crowd. I've changed politically since then, not in a dramatic way. I'm still kind of left wing, but I was part of this kind of woke group think where I I thought I had to say the correct thing. And so Marin is an exaggerated version of that. And Marin is Marin. Does does identify strongly as a feminist, and she wants to be on the right side of things. And so, one of the things I tried to do with my plot is, you know, ask myself how far could I make Marin go in the name of doing the right thing? She's telling herself the whole time that she's doing the right thing. But uh, another thing I'm talking about in this book is this idea of, you know, if we put women in charge of everything, does that automatically fix the world? Like, are women necessarily more virtuous and ethical and pure and nice and compassionate than men as bosses in the corporate workplace? I don't think so. <laughs>
0: (laughs) something that we've encountered on the podcast but also I think generally when we try and talk about this in real life is that if you critique what is generally referred to as woke culture or some of the social justice narrative one of the immediate responses you get is well aren't you then just critiquing inclusivity or are you you, don't you like diversity they're two different things aren't there there's the sort of inclusive progressive broadly left sentiments and then there's this discourse as you say that that has become this set of memes or statements that you can say or positions which are often contradictory or self-defeating and Those moments happen in the book where characters will say things like, oh, I like diversity, but actually isn't making women criticize each other the opposite of what we're trying to do. The difference between those two things is, is really stark. But I wondered, and I know you've written about this and we've both read and enjoyed your Girlboss essay a lot, but what is woke?
2: Something that I find really useful is John McWhorter's idea of this as a new religion, so Mm. that there is an orthodoxy here. So I'm not making fun of social justice, and I admire many activists that are fighting, you know, for racial equality in the United States and trans rights. I think those are all worthy causes to fight for. I'm specifically poking my finger at this kind of internet activism that all happens online. And its targets are other people who are online. And so it's as if if we publicly shame someone on Twitter, that's going to solve racism in America. I think in America, we're so overwhelmed by huge intractable problems that we look for easy targets. We look for where we can make a difference. And oftentimes that's online. And so what I see and what I make fun of, I think, is... Anything that's kind of a rigid dogma, whether that's the wellness industry, you know, gluten must be your problem if you haven't gotten rid of gluten, like what are you doing? Or politics that doesn't allow for any curiosity or disagreement, that it's either you're a true believer or you're a heretic, and then we have to catch you and tell other people you're a heretic so they stop following you too. There's this, now there's this, um, I see this, this idea of contagion of ideology that if you associate with the wrong person, if you signed a letter that J.K. Rowling also signed, her ideas have been transmitted to you like a virus and you're also guilty of her thought crimes. yeah yeah Yeah. oh there's there's lots I want
1: to talk about from that that's really interesting and I think that the idea of the cult or religion of wokeness and what you were saying about contamination of ideas and the easy target internet culture was making me think about how in a lot of ways this is a book about words becoming meaningless so words on a beach towel words that are mantras that are rules or things that all the women will just come out with like they'll just revert to the meme or the catchphrase that language it's Itself seems to be quite seems to become quite sort of weak and meaningless throughout the novel to all of the characters. And I was thinking how it's interesting that at the very beginning, that notion of the digital detox—anything that you take a break from—is a is a detox and somehow sciency and meaningful and medical. So there's that overlap between like the idea that not going on Twitter for an evening is somehow detoxifying that's I'm interesting
2: not... you're right that it's like medicinal language that valid what you're doing and then i suppose i'm also
1: really interested in the relationship that you see between the whole kind of wellness and pampering industry and all of these things that you're talking about because obviously there are real world contexts for this and inspirations for it and you've mentioned some of them but the the kind of relationship between pampering and yoga and skin products and feminism like what do you see that relationship as being and how do you how do you want to critique
2: it well i i started writing this book in 2017 right after donald trump had been inaugurated into office And everyone was very upset by everyone. I mean, I guess liberals like me, we were all very upset and we were like looking around at each other, like this must be a mistake. Like we have to do something about this. What are we going to do? And so we were just like in a constant level of outrage. Like every time there was a Senate hearing to nominate another post, you know, it was just calling your reps, you know, and at the same time, companies figured out we were very upset and started marketing things to us to calm down. So I kind of witnessed this intersection between despair and outrage um, on the left and the proliferation of this wellness messaging that I think is just a rebrand of diet culture. You know, when I was growing up, I read magazines about how to lose 10 pounds, but now it's, you know, how to cut out certain food groups or how to work on your gut health. Um, But it's just different messaging that's also telling women that their bodies need work. And so these messages to calm down and take a break before you could go back into the arena of your outrage. I guess I was really kind of skeptical of that and interested in that because who's profiting from our outrage is really like the social media companies and the media companies and the way you know media responds to their audience by stoking and triggering us emotionally to keep us as customers. And so we're all implicated in this terrible system that makes us feel terrible. And then Instagram shows us ads. The other night I asked my male partner, you know, what Instagram ads does he see? It's, it's so different. It's hilarious because I see all kinds of detoxifying diet programs and, and loungewear. And he sees like very innocuous, like electronic gadgets and cat food. Like no one's trying to sell him something to change his body.
1: That's fascinating. And it's it's almost kind of dystopian, isn't it? The idea that social media is one day trying to whip you into a frenzy and the next day trying to temporarily calm you down, but calm you down via you spending some money to call yes. yourself. That's
0: fascinating. That's one of the things I liked about the book is, obviously it centres, as you say, it's the mo- most obviously centers on this sort of, this well-being industry and how it manifests itself in social media, but you get these glimpses of how these exact same mechanics work in different spheres as well. So there's John, isn't it? Like Marin's partner, whenever we see him, he's doing exactly the same stuff, but in a political realm. And obviously there's- Yeah,
2: that- he's kind of a Bernie bro socialist.
0: Yeah. yeah, so, and he's experiencing the same patterns. I mean, for me, but one of the things that really hit me, Like a ton of bricks when I was reading this book was the "stay woke" your section where the consultants come in and say, you know, if you want to demonstrate engagement, you need to get these people to start these women to start criticizing each other, which is something that instinctively Devin is uncomfortable with. But then they go along with it because engagement outrage equals engagement, which is what you need to demonstrate advertisement.
2: Yeah, and I think Devin is uncomfortable because she knows. I mean, she would be the object of this scrutiny. She would be the wealthy white woman that it's so easy to make fun of. And I'm sure you guys have talked about this in the podcast, but the idea of the, Whether you're punching up or punching down, we're told that we can only punch up. So Devon is an easy character for people who haven't read my book. Devon is like the Gwyneth Paltrow, skinny blonde face of the company. She's an easy target for ridicule. And so the the idea of a, you know, a web series where other women critique other women for cultural appropriation, Devon is a little uncomfortable with that, but they convince her that it'll, you know, make money.
0: Just coincidentally, I read that and then I was reading something else in the private Eye magazine at the same time which was about Facebook. Nick Clegg said, on behalf of Facebook, Facebook doesn't profit from hate. There's no incentive for us to do anything but remove it. But actually, hate is what demonstrates engagement, is it? Outrage. And suddenly I thought, well, it made me want to leave social media. I'm in the same position that you describe in your pinned tweet, which is, I want to leave social media, but I... (laughs) wrote the podcast which critiques social media and that seems to underpin so much of this woke outrage as well like it's all driven by these mechanisms that are supposed to make people they're divisive aren't they?
2: Yeah and like when I was you know my experience running this feminist organization we part of the organization was a Facebook group a secret it wasn't a secret because it had 40,000 members but it was private you had to be invited to join I would wake up every morning thinking oh god what happened in the night while I was asleep Facebook was the first thing I checked in the morning what, what controversy had happened overnight the last thing I looked at before I went to bed. It's like the internet, I've always pushed back on this idea that the internet is not real life because what happens on social media has huge repercussions for people's lives and livelihood in positive and negative effect. I've had, you know, my career as a writer, I owe thanks to the internet many positive things have happened to me, but can really you know, damage people's psychology, mental health. And I think we're seeing that especially now during the pandemic.
1: One of the reviews that I read of the novel described it as a very anti-capitalist book, in a good way. <laughs> would you describe it as a very anti-capitalist book? Is Would that be kind of one of your first targets or is it more about the individuals who partake in those systems?
2: That's such a funny question. You know, I, I don't know that I would have described it that way myself, but hearing it described by you that way, like that feels exciting to me. Like, like that is a <laughs> radical position I would take <laughs> anti-capitalist, something funny that happened um, when I was in the weeks leading up to the book. Of course, you know, I was nervous about having a book come out during the pandemic. This is less than ideal for me as an author. And like two different friends offered to introduce me to different brands on Instagram so that I could collaborate with the brands to promote my book. And both of these people had read my book. And I bristled at this suggestion because I thought that would make me a huge hypocrite if I'm going on some like cannabis skin foundation uh, brand or something. To tote my book because these are the objects of my satire. The fact that my own peers in the writing community think that that would be something that I would do is, is surprising, but it's also true that it's harder and harder to make a living as a writer. And so many people I know are writing for brands. I know one of your questions was about um, parody, the parodies of these like internet forums, including this branded content post that's in the book where Marin is investigated by the Secret Service but it's written as like a promotional post for, I think I call it Lunar Milk, which is my joke on um, Moon Juice, which is a real brand. <laughs> but yeah, I I see, it's like the line is getting blurred between what's advertising and what's editorial content. You see it on the homepage, when I go to the homepage of the New York Times in tiny, tiny font, I'll sometimes see something that's like, this is actually a sponsored post. But they're trying to hide it. And so I'm really skeptical of this and aware of this. Yeah, I don't know if that answered the question. It's interesting
1: to get an insight into how the industry works and anyway, and that that's how it works when you write a novel that you get approached to hook up with brands for promotion. But it's fascinating that that would happen with this book. There'd be any any idea of marketing it in this way. I mean, because I would say the title of the book itself is satirical and, you know, is, is immediately problematizing the idea of self-care and what self-care is. Do you think some people just read the title and thought self-care, so she probably wants to like hook up with somebody who makes lotion.
2: Well, two things. One, the publisher wanted me to change the title because they thought that people would take it sincerely, that it would be like a self-help book. Yeah. And then I pushed back against this And my literary agent said, like, you can communicate that it's ironic with the cover image. And then they came back with this image of the lotion bottle with the black goop coming out of it. And I love the cover. I think they did an excellent job. And I think anyone who picks it up is going to understand there's something ironic going on. The second thing is that, you know, a few minutes ago, we talked about the three layers of satire or the three layers of the targets of my satire. I don't think every reader gets every layer. So I think some people just get one layer of it. It's been like shocking to me. Some people on social media that say they love the book. And I think to myself, well, you're a Marin, <laughs> you know, like you don't realize that you're a Marin and that you're doing exactly the kind of thing that I think is morally reprehensible, but you loved the book. So not everyone realizes that they're the target. And I think people, of course, people don't want to be the target of the satire. So they have to say that they got the joke.
0: It reminded me of, again, the Medium essay where you talk about woke capitalism, which, given that everyone talks about how woke is allegedly left-wing, is is already a huge contradiction isn't it it's all about selling things and it's all about propping up the man in that sense i can see i would say that it is anti-capitalist uh, is in that it skewers the the extent to which capitalism underscores all of this wokeness which is the other target
2: yeah and we know that millennials want to be ethical consumers so the way to sell something to a millennial is say like actually you know when you buy one pair of shoes another pair of shoes goes to a needy person when you buy one pair of eyeglasses we donate another pair of eyeglasses something was on instagram to me i would that was an ad I saw that was like, if you buy this lipstick, 10% goes to LGBTQ people. And I was like, in what way, in what way is my buying lipstick helping gay rights? Like, that doesn't make sense. It's it's left-wing millennials that are in my, you know, my peers that are getting all excited about Amazon or Netflix issuing their Black Lives Matter statement on Twitter. I don't find this to be exciting. I would like these companies to pay taxes. And then have those taxes go to social services for Americans. So I guess this is my anti-capitalist socialism rant but I guess I just think it's interesting to me that you know people I know that that support progressive candidates in the primary such as Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who are socialist leaning are also demanding corporations um, tell us how much black lives mean to them I think it's hollow and empty and it's, it's just, it looks good for them.
0: There was a cartoon that I saw a couple of weeks ago too, which was a, a, a businessman standing in a sweatshop telling them to start stitching anti-slavery onto the jumpers. And I thought, well, that's sort of, that's everything, isn't it? And issuing a statement and maybe a few high profile sackings, and then you don't have to address any of the systemic issues. And that's how, to my mind, how so much of this works.
2: Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and I, these systemic issues are really naughty. I mean, they aren't enough, you know, I can't personally solve any of them but this this pr spin stuff i'm very tired of
0: i think i've heard you i can't remember if I read it if i heard you say it recently that like the robin d'angelo style of social justice is social justice through the lens of self-care
2: of self-improvement yeah <laughs> that robin d'angelo's white fragility which is catching like wildfire i mean it's like number one on multiple bestseller lists it's all about working on your own self and your own biases and white women in america you know love this shit <laughs> it's like give us the book to read you know let me change my habits. Let me change my skincare. You know, now it's like, let me work on my implicit bias. And the, the women that I see reading this book are these left-wing progressive woke people. Like it's the people that are already activists who already are passionate about fighting racism and injustice in America. They're the ones picking up this book. And I just think like, why?
1: Yeah. You kind of know that at Ritual, they would have done that training,
2: wouldn't they? Oh yeah. Probably would have been like book of the month club book yeah. a month at ritual for sure
0: hey if you do a sequel there'll, there'll need to be affinity groups in it won't there Perfect. right
2: white affinity group a lot of this new anti-racism trends seem very racist i mean separating people into groups by identity seems yeah. very racist it's the opposite of diversity and inclusion
0: when i'm when i'm trying to say what is and isn't woke that's usually the tell if it's actually enacting the very thing that it's critiquing so, so when did feminism become telling some other women to shut the fuck up. Like, how is that consistent? That's when I feel like wokeness is happening. That's a really
2: good point. And I see on Twitter, I've been seeing recently people saying like, oh, is Karen just a way to call a white woman a bitch in public? Like, I thought we weren't allowed to do that anymore, but now we can't. Just call her Karen
1: instead. Yeah, every, it's just kind of... But you you do take on race, though, don't you? Through the character Khadija, which is kind of a more nuanced and detailed examination of race and racial politics in the workplace than, than some of what we've just been talking about. So what did you want to bring out, particularly through that character and her pregnancy and her status at
2: work. Yeah, so I know you've you've asked previous guests about, you know, whether they were anticipating any backlash to their satires. The thing that I was nervous about was that some woke people would say that I shouldn't have written a black character as a white woman. That's the backlash I was anticipating. What has happened is that other white women have asked me about writing the character of (laughs) Khadija. So I haven't heard from any women of color. I've only heard from white women. Um, And I think what they're really asking is, who gave you permission to write a black character? But I thought about this, I was nervous about it. I thought I could write a book with only white characters and then I would get the pushback of how could this office place only have white women? Like, are there no women of color? That's not believable. I could have written Khadijah as a background character and not given her her own voice and perspective. And then I would have gotten criticism for not giving Khadijah a voice. So I decided I'm going to write in her voice. So I wrote, there's three characters. The book is alternating first person between Marin, Devin, and Khadijah. Khadijah is a Black woman, a Black millennial. She's the youngest of the three and she's there token diversity hire so that they can have staff photos with Khadija with her braids um, and show that they're a diverse workplace. And Khadija has a secret, which you mentioned that she's pregnant. And one of the, it's been really interesting since my girl boss essay went viral on Medium. And then a couple weeks later, the book came out and I've gotten so many direct messages from women that say things from, you know, I couldn't have put my finger on this girl boss thing, but now that you've written about it, I really see it everywhere. And I got a DM from a woman that said, Uh, She worked at a startup and she was pregnant and she had to hide it because they had no parental leave policy and they had no HR department. They just had some one like euphemistically called like star talent director or something. And she said, she DM'd me and she said, like, I would recommend anyone who works at a startup, just learn the labor laws themselves because there's no protection. And so Khadijah is a way for me to show that again, with this kind of girl boss capitalism, you may have a feminist veneer. But behind the scenes, your workplace may not live up to your feminist brand. And it's
1: fascinating that she she starts off being a kind of a token for for the other women in that, like she has this. She has to go around and kind of make sure that all the photos are evenly, all the pictures are evenly kind of balanced, and that there are enough people of color in them. But what she ends up doing in the novel and doing for Maron and Devin is what she ends up shining a light on is the injustice of the the lack of an HR department or or a maternity policy. And that that hadn't really occurred to me about startup businesses, but it's so obvious, you know, when you set it out like that and realize that, yeah, of course, they're they're not going to have those kind of policies in place.
2: Yeah, I think companies think like, we'll put that off until later. Like, we don't need that at the beginning. We're all friends here, right? We're all making money. We're all friends.
0: We've got 10 commandments.
2: (laughs) We've got 10 commandments, right.
1: So um, if you want to hear the rest of that interview and part two of this episode, then if you're a Patreon subscriber, you'll be able to do so. And also, if you're not, you'll be able to do so. because you don't even have a Patreon, everyone can listen to it. That's what I'm saying. So part two of, of that interview with Lee Stein will be in part two of the podcast, won't it?
0: That's absolutely right. Yeah, so keep an eye on your RSS feeds and the Twitter feed and followers at Saturn No because very shortly we'll be releasing the second half of our delightful interview with Lee Stein.
1: That's right. But for now, maybe sit halfway up.
0: Mm, sit halfway up. Stay halfway cool. Yeah,
1: And but completely shut up. Yeah. See you <laughs> next time. Bye. <laughs>